uh, this chapter, <clears throat> this chapter of the confession focuses on what is considered to be the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. And when I say that this is the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, what I mean is that all the specifics within this teaching are absolutely essential. Not only to properly understand the nature of God, uh, but to recognize its specifics as absolutely essential to Christianity. In other words, if we were to examine the teachings, let's just say, of a group or a ministry out there that would self-identify as Christian, but yet they reject the orthodox teaching of the Trinity, the church as an institution whose head is the Lord Jesus Christ has a moral obligation before God to count that group as heretical and outside of the church of Jesus Christ. This doctrine is that important and foundational. The doctrine of the Trinity expressed specifically in our confession, the Second London, uh, is one that the particular Baptists of the 17th century and the Westminster divines would identify as one with the historic Trinitarian doctrine as formulated in the Nicene Creed. Uh, in other words, what we believe about the Trinity is what the church has always believed about the Trinity. Uh, this is a doctrine that is mostly agreed upon between Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and the Protestant Church. And you can see by the wording in the confession, you're all getting the handouts now, uh, but you'll see by the wording of the confession that it, explicit, it explicitly distanced itself from any form of anti-Trinitarian or restorationist Christianity in the Radical Reformation who wanted to do away with everything from the past. Right? During the Reformation, there were people who wanted to reform in such a radical way that they wanted to undo or just not carry over anything from the past. But that's not what the reformers uh, did, and you can see that in the confession, that they preserved some of these truths um, that were always confessed uh, from the early church. This is to say that the particular Baptists, along with other reformers, pushed back against the idea that to be orthodox was to completely do away with every theological development of the past, especially the Nicene Doctrine of God, in which the reformers saw to be true and consistent with Scripture. Now, on the other hand, in our confession, as well as other Reformed confessions, you'll notice that the Reformers, uh, they would place a significant emphasis on the sovereignty of God, which you'll see as we get into the next few chapters. There's a, a strong Reformed emphasis on God being sovereign and how that, how that plays out. An interesting point to make is that because our confession combines statements from the first London Confession, the Savoy Declaration, the Westminster Confession. Our confession actually provides a more detailed statement of the Trinity than any of those other documents, which, is, which you may find interesting. This was especially helpful during the time with the rise of, the, of Arminianism and the tendency for many to fall into the heresy of Unitarianism. Uh, and it is here that we can see the importance of being confessional, right? Everyone says that they're biblical. Everybody. Everyone who is Christian, they all say they're biblical. Until you find out what they confess to believe. Um, so this is, this is the importance of having a document where we can, we can look and, and test the scripture. Uh, with that said, let's get into chapter one. Uh, by the way, you'll notice there's three chapters. The first chapter, I'm sorry, not the chapter, excuse me, the paragraphs. Uh, within this chapter. There's three paragraphs within this chapter. The first paragraph uh, deals with the nature and the attributes of God. The second paragraph deals with the relation of God to his creation, how this God relates to creation. And the third deals with the triunity or the trinity or the trinitarian nature of God. But let's go ahead and start with the first paragraph. Uh, can I get someone to read the first paragraph for me, the whole thing? Thank you. The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. His essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. He is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable emotions. He only has immortality, dwelling in life that no one can approach. 
He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, in every way infinite, absolutely holy, personally wise, holy, free, completely absolute. He works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. <clears throat> now, there's so much that can be said just by looking at that. It's a jumble of a lot of information. Uh, but if you look carefully, you'll see that it's addressing important doctrines that are related specifically to the nature of God. Uh, and because of the limitations of time uh, that I have now, I'll, I'll only address a few. I'm only going to pick uh, some of what we see there and, and try to summarize it. I want to start off, though, with the first sentence. <clears throat> Our confession states that there is but one and only one living and true God. So right off the bat, we read a confession of monotheism. Therefore, when you compare Christianity to paganism, we immediately see this important distinction that we believe in one God. Christianity is monotheistic in that it believes in only one God. And we read of this confession of faith in Scripture uh, with Deuteronomy 4, uh, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 6, 4 with, uh, with the Shema. Uh, can someone read that? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Thank you. So, again, here we see that God is one. Now, regardless of the false claims that circula circulate the world today, uh, some say that Christianity, Christianity believes in three gods. At no point does true biblical Christianity ever state that three gods exist. It's always been a monotheistic religion. The historical Christian position has always been that there is only one true and living God. Our understanding of the Trinity does not in any way contradict the teaching that God is one. It isn't a paradox or a divinely permissible contradiction. <clears throat> it simply is truth from Scripture. God is one, yet he is three. And we'll touch more uh, on the Trinity as we get into paragraph three. Well, you'll look, if you look in the uh, paragraph that we're on now, in the second sentence, we read that God is self-existent and infinite in his being and his perfections. So here we get into what I consider to be most fundamental to the being of God. This speaks on what we would call the aseity of God, which is another way of saying that God is non-contingent or not dependent on anything. He is self-existent in himself. If you were to think deeply of, on how much your existence is dependent on something or someone outside of yourself, it should shatter any thoughts of self-pride, as if you're a trophy of your own accomplishments. As creatures who are not God, we ought to see how foolish it is to take pride in our so-called independence, which you'll see is not really independence at all. And yet God is completely different from his creatures. <clears throat> if you really think about it, for the most vital times of your life, your mother or father provided for you when you were helpless. As a baby, you couldn't feed yourself. You were utterly dependent on your parents. And even your parents were utterly dependent on others as they raised you and cared for you. If you were to remain alive, your parents needed to provide for you Therefore, they relied on their jobs, their finances. They relied on help from doctors for medicine. And ultimately, they needed the help from God to provide for all of those things. And even now, many of you, as well as myself included, are dependent on your employer, your family, your friends, the grocery store. You're dependent on the gas station. Uh, you're dependent on your mechanic. Uh, you're dependent on the government in some way, shape, or form, and so much more. And it's foolish to assume that you're self-sufficient. And as the scripture so eloquently states in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? 
If then you received it, then why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, there is no being that has the right to assume that they're entirely self-sufficient and independent except for one, and that one is God. God did not need to be fed. God did not need anyone outside of him to raise him up to be a good boy. God is eternally self-existent. And not only has God eternally existed in himself, but as Thomas Aquinas says, God is, is necessary being. If any of us is to exist, God had to exist. And therefore, we as his creatures are utterly dependent on him. Yet he is dependent on nothing. I would go as far as to say that God isn't even self-dependent. I'll, I'll say that again. God is not self-dependent, right? For example, we are self-dependent in many ways. For example, I'm dependent upon my heart to keep me alive, my blood to circulate, my brain to function properly. Yet God is not a divided being like we are, in which God is self-dependent on parts of his being in order for him to function properly. God simply is. He is self-existing, yet not self-dependent in any way that we are. This is why the statement that God made about himself to Moses was profound. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember, but Exodus 3.14, where God said to Moses, I am who I am. Uh, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has, has sent me to you. You see that statement, I am. This is the self-existing one. Let's look at another passage of scripture that speaks a little bit on, on the aseity of God. Psalm 90, verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. John 5, 26 says, For as the Father has life in himself. And then uh, Acts 17, 24 through 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples, made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So we have our being in him, but he has his being on nobody. With that said, I think it's important that we consider what it says in going back to the paragraph in sentence three, which states that his essence cannot be understood by anyone but him. And this speaks on what we call the incomprehensibility of God. This is not to say that we can never know God or that it is a vain pursuit. On the contrary, we're commanded by Scripture to know him. However, what it does mean is that we can never know him fully. And if any creature claims to have gained full comprehension of the essence of God, they're essentially saying that their imminent mind has fully comprehended eternal categories, and that's impossible. There's a creator-creature distinction, and, and they don't cross over. <clears throat> Moving along, let's look at sentences four through seven. I'm starting where it says, he is, perfect, he is a perfectly pure spirit. It says, he is a perfectly pure spirit. He is invisible and has no body, parts, or changeable human emotions. He alone has immortality, dwelling in light that no one can approach. He is unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty in every way, infinite, absolutely holy, perfectly wise, wholly free, completely absolute. Now, <clears throat> these sentences go well together to communicate one important truth that God is a simple and absolute being. What I mean by simple and absolute is that God is not like his creatures that are made up of complex parts working together to be kept sustained. Notice in the beginning of this, these selected sentences that it begins by stating that God is a perfectly pure spirit. And along with that, Notice that the ending of these selected sentences end with God being completely absolute. Right? He's a, uh, he is a pure spirit, and he's completely absolute. 
What does that all mean? You'll notice that if I were to stretch my hands, my left palm on one side of the room, while my right palm is on the other side of the room. See what I'm doing? This is to say that while one part of me is in one location, that same part of me is absent from the other location. Right? My left arm is here, but it's not here. Part of me is here, the other part is not. Now, if we were to consider the nature of God, we can never say, ever say that God is, in, is on one side of the room while another part of God is in the other side of the room. That's if we're going to take seriously God's uh, omnipresence. God is fully in one location as he is fully in another location simultaneously. So sometimes we think of God uh, in the way that oftentimes the scriptures uh, describe him, uh, where the earth is his footstool. That's uh, anthropomorphic uh, language to, to describe the majesty of God. But if you take that literally, then your concept of God is, is distorted. You're assuming that his feet are here and his head is somewhere else. That's not how, that is not uh, the nature of God. God is everywhere at once. Part of him is not uh, somewhere while the other part is somewhere else. We see this in the famous psalm, uh, Psalm 139, 7 through 8. Can someone read that? Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shield, you are there. Amen. So here we see that God is not a divided being. <clears throat> he is fully God everywhere God is. The confession goes on to say that God is invisible and has no body and has no parts. So first of all, we know that God has no body, right? Because the scriptures tell us that God is spirit. You see that in John 4, 24, and also 1 Timothy 1, 17. So we understand that God has no body. How about the parts? Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, in relation to God being simple in nature, like I mentioned before, this is what the confession means when it states that he has no parts. It's not so much saying that he doesn't have body parts. That's not so much what it's trying to say as much as it is trying to communicate that God is a pure being. Even in his attributes, for example, God is simple and not divided in parts. Uh, I'll give you an example. 1 John 4.8 says that God is love, yet we also read in Genesis 18.25 that God is just. So there's, that's two attributes of God. God is love and God is just. If we're going to be consistent with the God described in the Bible, we have to conclude that God's love and his just, or his just character, his justice, are never separate. His love informs his just character and vice versa. It's never a, an unjust love or a, love or a justice that's apart from love. Uh, his love informs his just character and vice versa. Now, if you think about a, a pie chart, right, draw a circle in your mind. God is never 25% love and 25% just and maybe 50% holy. It's not divided in that way. In the doctrine of simplicity, what it's saying there that God is simple, he has no parts. This is what it's trying to say. It's understood that all aspects of God are always 100% in God. The English particular Baptists, along with other uh, reformers, held to this classical doctrine of God's simplicity and absoluteness, as was taught by uh, the, the traditional uh, Thomism, the Thomas Aquinas' understanding of the nature of God, and also reformed scholastics. And this is how God has been understood for centuries, and we see that this is, this is a biblical concept. It's only in modern studies that many have detracted from the traditional view of God and made him to be something that uh, is quite different from what the church has always confessed and also what we see in, in scripture. But looking at our confession, we see that the Reformed Baptists has, have remained orthodox in their teaching of, of God. Moving on, you'll see in the same sentence, 
in the, in the confession that God is without body, God is without parts, and following that it states that God is without changeable human emotions. Now the older version of the Second London uses the word passions, and, and the Westminster does as well. So instead of the phrase changeable human emotions, the, the older language that you see in the Second London Confession and also the Westminster uses the word passions. In other words, God is without body, God is without parts, and God is without passions. Uh, as to say that, that uh, well, I'll, I'll define passions for you. I, I'll say this, I honestly prefer the term passion or passions because I think it best describes what the reformers were confessing about God here, which actually goes beyond just emotions. Uh, the term passion was used in a different way than we use it now. You know, we think of passion, we, uh, we, th we tend to think of emotions and feelings, but the term simply means to undergo. Or uh, a better way to put it in a more better context is to undergo suffering. Uh, think about the passion of the Christ, right? You see that word there, the passion of the Christ. Christ underwent suffering. And so what the confession is getting at when it says that God is without passions, he, it's, it's stating that God doesn't undergo anything, right? Let alone emotion. God is not like, or rather changeable emotion. That's what I mean. God is not like his creatures, he is not affected by anything outside of himself. Nothing outside of him causes change in him. You see that? That's what it means by God is without passions. He's impassable. Nothing outside of God makes him change within his being. He's unchangeable. Rather, everything else is affected by God and affected by his divine decree. God, for example, never falls in love Right? We fall in love. But rather, God is love. He doesn't fall in love. He is love. So love doesn't, doesn't uh, possess him as it, as it would us. God is the, the uh, source where love flows from. So God is the origin of love. He is love. Uh, and he, he doesn't fall in love. And in that, we see that God is not like his creatures. God doesn't change his mind. That's another thing. Because anything that God does goes always according to his will. His will. God has never been surprised. Uh, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man. He will not lie. God is not a human being. His decisions will not change. If he says he'll do something, then he will do it. If he makes a promise, then he will do what he promised. He is immutable, and so are his attributes. God does not possess affections because he's never affected. God is not emotional because he is emotive. Rather, any sentiment that God has is always rooted in his being. Therefore, instead of affections, God has perfections. So when we see uh, anything expressed by God rooted in his nature. It simply is who he is. He is actual being. He doesn't fall into, um, he doesn't fall into anything as we would, like emotions, etc. cetera. Uh, even his wrath is not an expression of emotions that his creatures caused on him, but rather a perfection of his divine justice. So while we as creatures undergo numerous emotions, God is unaffected and unchanged as he expresses his perfections. Uh, moving along, uh, you see towards the end of paragraph one where it says, he is most loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. He overflows with goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He rewards those who seek him diligently. At the same time, he is perfectly just and terrifying in his judgments. He hates all sin and will certainly not clear the guilty. I would say for the sake of time, um, I won't break that down, but, but we can read Exodus 34, 5 through 8, and I think, uh, I think it best captures all these attributes that we just, 
we just read about in the confession. Uh, can someone read this? The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Amen. I love that passage. It, it ought to cause worship. Um, this is a profound passage that I think speaks perfectly on what, you, what we read there. This is God's uh, proclamation of himself. For the sake of time, let's go ahead and look at paragraph two. <clears throat> Can I get a volunteer to read paragraph two? Thank you. God has all light, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all sufficient in himself. He does not need any creature he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from him, through him and to him. He has absolute sovereign rule over all creatures, to act through them, for them or upon them as he pleases. In his sight, everything is open and visible. His knowledge is infinite and infallible. He does not depend upon any creature, so for him, nothing is contingent or uncertain. He is absolutely holy in all his plans, in all his works, and in all his commands. Angels and human beings owe to him all the worship, service, or obedience that creatures owe to the Creator, and whatever else He is pleased to require of them. Amen. Amen. And as the first paragraph dealt with the nature and attributes of God, this paragraph deals more with God on how He relates to His creation. It begins by stating that God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself. He alone is all-sufficient in Himself. He does not need any creature he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. So we see in this list, life, glory, goodness, and blessedness. <clears throat> and these are all attributes that God has that he's not getting from outside of himself. God enjoying life, glory, goodness, and blessedness is experienced by God completely separate from the life of creation. So before creation and on into eternity past, God had all life in and of himself. And it's difficult for us to conceive of life outside of creation, but God has, has always had life unto himself and never was in need of any of his creatures at all. God has all glory in and of himself. Creation may bring God glory, but in making creation, there was no glory that was taken from God. Creation by its existence does not and never will add glory to God's essence. And oftentimes we think, oh, God created me because I'm going to bring glory to God. And you, you know, God's hero. But God has all glory within himself before you were even created. Uh, there's no more glory to add. <laughs> God was fully and already glory. God has, has all goodness in and of himself. As with life and glory, God is already fully goodness, and nothing can take away or add to that goodness. God is already goodness. God uh, did not need to obtain it or gain it in some sense. The goodness of creation before the fall, for example, when things were good back in the garden, as good as it was, it still added no more goodness to God. God has, has had all blessedness in and of himself. God is blessed, but this blessedness comes from him. We could even say that God is self-blessed. And when we think of passages that tell us to bless God, for example, we see that in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. It does not mean we add any blessedness to God. It is simply what is due to God, and so we must bless him. 
A good passage that reminds us of this truth is Romans 11.36, which says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Anything that we do good unto God, we have to borrow from God to give it back to God. It's like when my daughter uh, makes uh, a wonderful uh, Valentine's heart for me or some, some card for Christmas. Um, you know, she had to use my resources. <laughs> Ultimately, it came from me. I appreciate it. I love it. It brings joy to my heart. But, uh, and not to sound dry, but in the economy of that situation, uh, I was the source of it all. There was nothing that was technically added to me. You know, not to sound like a dry <laughs> father. I love those gifts. Yes. I, always, uh, I have a, a wood block, you know, that they gave, like I said, a little sheet that they made a cotton ball. Yes. And, and, and it's always been that same thing. So sort of outside of the... The, the knowledge of what this is, it has no meaning. Yeah. But, but in what it was as yeah. a result of like, feedback as a parent and yes. what God has given us in glory, it's, it's, a, it's precious. It's precious. Amen. It's, it, Amen. I always looked at what I was doing to God to make cotton sheep. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Contrary to man-centered theology, God is not standing in need of any creature which he has made. In fact, even though he made us for his own glory, he's not deriving any glory from us, but only manifesting his own glory through us and upon us. We get this concept from Job 22, uh, mm -hmm. verses 2 and 3. This is, this is a profound passage, actually. I, I love Job because he asks real questions, uh, and, and from his questioning, you see some deep theological truths. Um, in the midst of his suffering, this is just sort of a preface to this passage. In the midst of his suffering, Job tries to make sense out of his pain by asking, why would God even care to allow affliction on me? Even if it was for his own glory, why? If he's so insignificant, he's a speck in the universe. What profit does God get from it? And look what it says. Job uh, 22 verses 2 to 3. It says, can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself, referring to God. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? So even Charles Spurgeon or John Calvin or Martin Luther, some of the greats, added nothing, added nothing to the glory that God already had. Now, God is displaying it. We're applauding it. We worship God uh, because of these historical events in history where God has used these men so, so profoundly. But in the end of the day, Job is asking the right question. Maybe he shouldn't ask it, um, but he, he, he is revealing some deep theological truths um, that we're not adding anything to God. Yeah. So you did say that we cannot add anything to God's glory. So what is understood by giving yeah, so we are commanded to give glory to God because it is due to God. Um, the, the, the glory that uh, he, uh, probably a better word would be, uh, is allowing us to steward for him, is, is probably a better way to understand us giving glory to God. So it's not to take away from the fact that we do give glory to God, but ultimately it's God who's giving glory to himself. And that's really what's going on. Um, there's nothing in... There's nothing, right, there's nothing in humans that are contributing to this ever-growing glory. We are mere vessels. Um, so God is sort of recycling his glory unto himself. Wouldn't it be right to say that those types of commands are more for us so that we don't get Amen. ourselves all puffed yeah. up and Amen. put ourselves in the place yeah. of God? Amen. Amen. That's, a, that's actually a, a great way to put it. Uh, in the end of the day, the only thing that has changed is us. And nothing about God has changed in, in the whole story of redemptive history. Um, yeah, we're yeah. commanded to give God glory. That's right. And in effect, in, in, since because of that, we know him more deeply, and that is God's ultimate desire. That's right. So we do that, yeah. Yeah, so, amen. Yeah, it's very purposeful. It's, yeah. it's very important. It's very significant. Um, 
but let us never get to the point where we um, assume that we're adding anything to his, his glory uh, in and of ourselves. That's probably a better way to put it. Um, for the sake of time, let's move on to paragraph three. <clears throat> Can I get uh, someone to read paragraph three? This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. Hmm. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without being and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on him. Amen. So we're getting into the, the, uh, the nature of God in relation to um, how God is triune. He's a trinity. And so starting with the first three sentences, the confession states that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we have already discussed the Old Testament claim of monotheism, we saw that passage in, in Exodus, um, that God, God is one. We, we've already covered that. However, it, it's also the Christian claim that the Old Testament also anticipates some sort of plurality in the nature of God. Uh, there's, there's the Trinity revealed in, in the Old Testament, uh, if, if you... If you're using, for example, the New Testament to shed some light into the old. Uh, for example, let's read Psalm 2. I mean, I'm going to fast forward some of these uh, passages here. Psalm 2, uh, 11 through 12. Can someone read that? Let's look at Psalm 110, 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies Amen. So these are just quick references to the Son, even in the Old Testament. Now there are clear passages in the Old Testament that indicate the also not only the Son, but the distinct personhood of the Holy Spirit as well. And so you see Father, you see Son, but you also see the Holy Spirit. Uh, Genesis 1 Verse 2 uh, says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, it's important to recognize that because uh, God is often referred to as God in the Old Testament, and yet there are instances where God is referred to as the Spirit of God. And so. Uh, You've got the where the we is used very early. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, uh, let us sort of uh, that, that's in our image, right? Right. That's where that royal we came from, and probably was mistaken. Yeah, and some have argued against the use of that as a defense for the Trinity. Um, yeah, but I, I, I'm convinced that uh, it's a sign that God is is triune. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Um, actually, let me take one back here. Job twenty six thirteen. It says, "By his wind, the heavens were made fair." This is a reference of the Spirit. His hand pierced the, the fleeing serpent. Uh, Psalm one thirty nine seven. Where shall I go from your Spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? 
Then we have Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Now those were Old Testament references. The New Testament has plenty as well. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, and notice the Trinitarian pattern there. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's one, and the love of God, that's two, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. A Trinitarian pattern. Then Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All three persons being used in one, one statement. Now, moving along, in the confession, we read the following. Uh, looking back at that paragraph in paragraph three. Uh, it says, these three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, without the essence being divided. This is sort of self-explanatory, the way that it's written there. Uh, it's simply affirming that God is one. Each person is truly God. Okay? The Son and the Spirit are not a lesser deity than the Father. But each person in the Trinity, Trinity shares equal essence. This means that the Son and the Spirit have the same attributes as the Father and of each other. The instant that you deny these facts of any of the persons of the Trinity, you fall into a problem in the Orthodox Trinitarian formulation. Uh, let's look at a quick passage here. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this passage speaks specifically on the humiliation of Christ, but to my point, it's important to see that Christ, being God, both in essence and equality, laid his life down for the sake of the mission of salvation. But again, you see uh, that each, of the, each persons of the Godhead are equal. That's what it states here about the Son. Now, one of the most common struggles that people have with understanding the Trinity is trying to understand what are the distinctions between the persons of the Godhead. In other words, if each person of the Trinity is equal in every way, how do we even determine their distinctions, right? What makes the Son not the Father if they're both equal in every way? What makes the Father not the Son or the Spirit? This is an important question to ask. We can understand their distinct roles in creation. For example, we know that the Father elects and decrees. We know that the Son is sent by the Father to the world in his incarnation and takes upon himself the sins of the elect and goes on the cross. And we know that the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners and applies the benefits of salvation to the sinners when they're united by faith uh, to Christ. But apart from the economy of the Trinity and redemption, or even before creation, what were their distinctions? Right? What were the distinctions between the persons of the Godhead if all of them were equal in essence? This is why confessions are important and the creeds are important. The creeds of the church have protected and fenced what we do know at least about God from the scriptures, which is that God is one, but in another sense, God is three. The creeds confessed that God is one in essence, but three in persons. But with that said, again, the question is, what does the Bible teach about their distinctions? What are the differences between the persons? The Bible teaches exactly what it says in your confession there. <clears throat> uh, it, it reads that the Father is not derived from anyone. You see that in the confession? The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son, though, is eternally begotten of the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. What does this mean? Well, starting with the Father, the confession describes him as being the source of the Godhead, for lack of better terms. This is why oftentimes the Father is simply referred to as God. When you open up the Bible and you see God, but you don't see the Father in Trinitarian passages, 
God, is the, God the Father is the source of the Godhead. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. I read that before with the Trinitarian formulation. However, the Bible describes the Son differently. It describes him as begotten from the Father. And we see this in John 1, 14. Uh, can someone read that? John 1, 14. And then, uh, can you also read uh, 118? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is the Son of the Father, he has seen. Yeah, so you see references to the Son as begotten of the Father. What does begotten mean? Well, the term begotten is a past participle of the verb beget, right? Which means to father or to produce from oneself, to generate. And so we see that the second person of the Trinity is begotten. However, this does not mean that he's lesser than the Father in any way. The reason why is because he's not only begotten, but he's eternally begotten. Another way to say this is that he is eternally generated from the Father. Try to, try to use your imagination here. Because <laughs> words, remember words... You, you have limits. It only goes so far. When we're talking about uh, being eternally generated. <laughs> so we have the finite trying to describe the infinite. That's right. That's what I'm trying to do here, sweating. Like, like. I mean, it's a, it's a way of letting us know that yeah. three persons were three persons from eternity. That's right. That's right. This wasn't something that it just, let's do this to ourselves. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, thank you. And... <clears throat> uh, Again, he's eternally generated from the Father. And this is truth from Scripture. We, we, we can at least land there, put a flag there, and say we've landed somewhere. Eternal, eternal generation is an act performed by the first person of the Trinity. Furthermore, this act by the first person is necessarily and eternally performed. This is what makes Jesus Christ uh, not have a beginning. Because he's eternally generated from the Father. So we, can, we, can, we don't have to side with the cults out there that say, he, that say he's begotten, therefore he's a lesser God. No, he's eternally begotten. He had no beginning. However, he's eternally begotten by the Father. Um, finally, the result of this act is the generation of the second person of the Trinity in such a way that the entire divine essence is communicated from the first person to the second person. This is why Jesus is both the Son of God and the exact imprint of, of the nature of God, as we read in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And finally, we have the Holy Spirit, which is confessed that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is biblical because the Holy Spirit is referred to in Scripture as both the Spirit of the, fa of the Father and also the Spirit of the Son. And you wonder, where, where's, whose Spirit is he? Is he the Father's Spirit or is he the Son's Spirit? Well, the Confession states that he proceeds from both. And we see this because the Bible teaches that he is the Spirit of the Father, but he's also the Spirit of the Son. Um, uh, I can list a bunch of passages. I have a lot of them. I'm not going to go through them, but I'll just share a few Matthew 10.20 says, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father, you see, speaking through you. And then you have Romans 8.9 that says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So you see, it's a Spirit that proceeds from the Father, Matthew 10.20. And it's the spirit that proceeds from the Son, uh, Romans 8, 9. So statements saying that the spirit is of the other two persons of the Trinity indicate that his person is tightly bound and originates with them. Like we think of the Son is of the Father. We, we, we see that same language with the spirit being of the Father and the spirit being of the Son. <clears throat> uh, little philosophical 
explanation for what it's worth. Um, all three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Uh, and uh, we can see <clears throat> uh, in the Council of Florence, which was stated in 1439, that since the Father has through generated, given to the only begotten Son everything that belongs to the Father, except being the Father, the Son has also uh, eternally from the Father, from whom he is eternally born, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. In other words, this is a, this is a way to say that the Spirit is from the Son because all that is of the Father was given to the Son. And so uh, we see this, uh, a good example of this is when Jesus Christ left the earth and they were saying, oh, you know, what are we going to do without you, Christ? He says, no, trust me, it's better that I leave and go with the Father. It's better that I reach my exaltation so that in my exaltation, the Father and I can send the Holy Spirit. Uh, this was that stage in Christ's glorification where all that was the Father was given to the Son. And in that moment, we see what we see in Pentecost, where from the Father and from the Son comes uh, the Holy Spirit, um, which proceeds from, from both. What is alluding to in John 16 when he says, All that the Father has is mine, therefore, yes. and I will take what is mine and I declare it to you. Yes, amen, amen. Yes, exactly. I'm going to go ahead and conclude with that. Um, just a concluding comments. I pray that we meditate more on the nature of God. When you think about God and we, when you think about his Trinitarian character, um, you know, it, it should remind you that this is the God that is there. This is the God uh, that Isaiah, uh, in, in the book of Isaiah, says, uh, where God declares that I am the Lord and there is no other. And oftentimes we come to worship. We, we involve ourselves in Christian living and fellowship um, and doing what Christians do. But, you know, how many times do we acknowledge the Trinitarian nature of God, you know? Do we pray? Um, do we worship acknowledging that, that God is, is triune? Uh, this is the God that's revealed in Scripture. And so I pray that we meditate more on the nature of God and the Trinity as we seek to grow in our faith. And may we be more conscious of the person of the Godhead or the persons of the Godhead in both our walks and also our worship. This is the Christian identity. This is what makes us Christian. Uh, to acknowledge that the God of the universe is a trinity. So let's, uh, let's continue to meditate on, on that. Uh, let me go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for ever being mindful of us, Lord, that you have ordained from eternity the salvation of your people. Um, and we are counted among them. We thank you so much for that. And because of your great love, you have sent your son to accomplish this redemption for us so that we would be united with you for eternity. And we thank you that all that is yours is given to Christ. And through that, your spirit has been sent to us to apply all that is Christ to us, Lord. And we uh, receive uh, uh, an inheritance that we, we do not deserve. But thanks be to God that you have <clears throat> chosen uh, to do so. Lord, so we thank you and we praise your glorious name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.